0: 2 Corinthians, we started last week. I spent some time in the introductory material, and then we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 1 on how we receive comfort and we pass that comfort on to others. Today we're going to try and cover a number of verses. Actually, the last part of chapter 1, this is a much longer section than I would ever Normally, try to do from 12 down to the end of the chapter, verse 24, and then all of chapter 2 today. Because Paul is writing and he's dealing with things that we would write in our letters. Paul writes about his travel difficulties. It's not that they're not important, but I'm going to kind of move through those kind of quickly. And then he deals with a problem in the church there at Corinth that he's written about and even visited them about. And then he concludes how we're victorious in Christ. So he's appealing to them to trust him. There was much discussion in the church, at least by several, that Paul was not a true apostle. He was not even a man of his word and that they shouldn't receive him back. I've entitled my message, Sincerely Yours. Last week I had the Opportunity to call Dr. Ed Nelson. He was my predecessor at South Sheridan, the pastor there for 30 years. And then I followed him there, and of course we moved over here and became Red Rocks Baptist Church, but had a long and, and really pretty delightful conversation. I told him I had just finished reading his book. I'd been in some other books and I hadn't gotten to his book, and, but I read through that book. And it's kind of a tome, it's close to 500 pages, if I'm remembering correctly, but I told him I'd finished it enjoyed it, found it interesting. He said, well, there's a story that I wanted in the book, but they cut it. I said, well, what was that story? He said, well, I was having problems with my voice. And he had problems on and off with his voice. But he said, I was having problems with my voice. So I went to the doctor, went to an allergist, and they did a number of tests, examined me, trying to figure out what was wrong. And they determined that I was allergic to chrysanthemums. And he said, well, that's interesting because I have uh, some chrysanthemum bushes right outside my bedroom window and sleep with the windows open. That must be the problem. So they dug up the chrysanthemums. He said, uh, a little while later, I was in Wyoming preaching a meeting and I got into the pulpit and began preaching and I was losing my voice. And I realized there was a beautiful arrangement of chrysanthemums right in front of the pulpit. He said, I wanted to struggle on, but I was beginning to squeak and whisper. And so I stopped and said, I have an allergy to chrysanthemum, but someone take these away. And so a lady came and took them out of the facility that they were meeting in. And then his voice kind of came back, got stronger and stronger, and was able to finish the message. And after the conclusion, that lady that picked up the chrysanthemums, she said, I'm the lady that arranged those chrysanthemums. I just want you to know those were silk flowers. <laughs> he said, man, did I feel foolish. Uh, he said, it was all in my head. I thought that I was allergic to them and they were silk flowers. The reality is sometimes it's hard to tell the real from the artificial. That's true in the spiritual realm, in the religious realm, in the spiritual realm. Discernment is crucial in dismissing false teachers that come into our life from sincere teachers of the word of God. And we have to practice discernment. In this section of scripture, the apostle Paul was answering some of the criticisms about him that were being leveled against him by individuals in the church at Corinth. Just like we deal with letters or emails or whatever, and we deal with problems, Paul was doing that. It shows how God used real letters to real churches and real people with real problems to minister to us today. So he's answering the criticism being leveled against him by some in the church, and they accused him of deception, broken promises, and dictatorial behavior. I always say if you're never accused of being a dictator, you're probably not a leader, because <laughs> all leaders get accused of being dictators at times. As difficult and as awkward as it was for Paul, he explains how his travel plans changed. Matter of fact, they changed several times. So that's what this last part of chapter one is about how his travel plans changed as he followed the Holy Spirit and God redirected his plans. And then He deals with how they should treat a repentant brother, someone who's been disciplined out of the church. And then the last section, ultimately, how God in Christ leads us to victory. So that's where we're headed as Paul writes, Sincerely Yours to these individuals. Look at verses 12 through 24 of chapter one. Allow me to read from chapter one. Paul talks about having a clear conscience about his changes for our boasting I'm reading in chapter 1 verse 12 for our boasting is this the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity not with fleshly wisdom but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you for we are not writing any other things to you what you read or understand they were saying he writes mysteriously we can't understand what he is saying Paul says, I'm writing to you very plainly. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you are also of ours. Paul writes and says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, ye are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Paul says, you're the seal of my apostleship. I don't need letters of commendation like the false teachers do. Why? Because you're my letter. You've been saved. You're, you're living letters. You're sermons in suits. Now go out and live it. I don't need letters of commendation, he says. It says in verse 14, as you have also stood, we are your boast and you are of ours. Paul's proud of them that they've come to faith and they're growing. Verse 15, and in this confidence, I intend to come to you. Before, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second blessing. I think it says in the Old King James, or a second benefit. you had been to him once, stayed there 18 months. He said, I want to come to you again so you can receive a second blessing from my ministry to you or a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you. So he planned on coming to Corinth. Remember, we talked about it's on that narrow isthmus connecting Macedonia and Acacia, that narrow isthmus of land. He said, I'm going to come through there. I'm going to minister to you. And then I'm going to go up to the Macedonia where Philippi and Thessalonica and some of the other churches are. Then when I come back, I'm going to minister to you again. Second blessing. I'm going to come through there twice. Neither of those things happened. Okay. Verse 17, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Did I not seek the Lord? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. It wasn't flip-flopping. Paul was, uh, I wasn't indecisive, thinking about going there, going somewhere else. That's not me. For the son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes. And in him, amen, the kind of final benediction. This is for sure in the Hebrew mindset to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us. With you in Christ has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. So I said I was going to come on my way to Macedonia. I was going to see you on the way back, but I wrote you such a severe letter. I rebuked you. I didn't want to come in there and do the same thing again. I spared you my coming to see if you would act upon the letter that I wrote. And they finally did. Not that we have dominion over you. I'm not your dictator. I'm not your boss. We don't have dominion over your faith, but we're fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Did a fair amount of reading about this passage, so I understand it. I can only hit the tops of the furrows. We can only see it from a 30,000 foot view here because Paul's talking about his travel plans. But he says here in verses 12 through 24 this idea I have a clear conscience about. I planned to come to you, but I couldn't come to you because the Holy Spirit redirected me. Remember, that's happened in the past with Paul. He wanted to go to Asia, and the Spirit wouldn't allow him to go to Asia. And finally, he went from Troas, where? Over to Macedonia, because he had in a vision the Macedonian man saying, come over and help us, preach the gospel to us. Paul was sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to explain that. Paul uses conscience 23 times here. He uses in verse 12. He uses the word conscience 23 times in his letter. For example, he says in Acts 24, 16, I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense before God and men. Now, there's not too many people that can say that. I don't think I can say that for sure. That I have a conscience that is void of offense before God and men. I don't offend people, and I certainly haven't offended God. But that's what Paul is saying. I have a clear conscience. He uses that term frequently. By the way, conscience is that inner faculty that accuses us when we do wrong and approves of our right actions. It either accuses us or approves of our actions. So our conscience is a thing that, it's not the same as our soul, it's part of our mind, but our conscience is trained that's what Paul was saying. As we train our conscience to be sensitive to the word of God, when we don't obey the word of God, our conscience convicts us. You could be a member of the mafia or, or you could be a pagan and your conscience never bothers you because you have no concept of the word of God. Paul had a conscience that was, that was trained by the word of God. So our conscience is kind of like a window that lets the light in to our thinking and to our actions. By disobedience, by the way, obedience to the Holy Spirit, disobedience to the Word of God, it's like the window is getting all fouled up and, and dirtied up, and pretty soon there's no light coming in. That's why the Bible says we've got, we can have, sear our conscience, or we can disobey our conscience. We want to allow our conscience to speak to us and be informed by the Word of God. Paul had originally promised to spend the winter in Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you turn one page back, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, last chapter, he says in these verses, he says on the first day of the week, each one of you take something, set it aside. He's talking about the offering. And then you come down to verse 5. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain to even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So he puts that tagline on there. I'm planning on coming to you. If the Lord permits, and I plan on spending the winter with you, and then I'll receive an offering, and I'll take it with the offering from the Macedonians and take it to Jerusalem. That's kind of the back story that we find in the book of Acts and Paul's other writing. But for unspecified reasons, he had to change those plans. He couldn't make two trips to Corinth on his way to Macedonia and then one on the way back. While at Corinth, he would receive this offering, and he eventually did, but it didn't happen. So he had to scrap plan A. He had to scrap plan B. And he says here in chapter 1, verse 23, because I didn't want to make another painful visit to you. Now remember, this was Paul's, if we could say it this way, problem child. This is his problem church. And you know what? In a way, that's not a bad thing because he dealt with so many problems. Now we have the Holy Spirit and God's insight. on on so many different issues from divorce and remarriage and and lawsuits and adultery and church discipline. And there's so many things that are dealt with in the Corinthian epistles because they had so many problems. But Paul was saying to them, every time I come to you, I'm dealing with a problem. I didn't want to have another severe letter and another grievous visit. So I trusted God to work in your life and I didn't come what he's telling them here but they said oh yeah he said he was coming so it prompted the corinthians to say paul says one thing and he does another paul promises something but he doesn't keep his promise uh his yes is no and his no's are yes that's how he says it here in the verses that we read so let me say i'm just trying to make an application from this misunderstandings amongst God's people are often very difficult to untangle. That's probably true across the board. But misunderstandings amongst God's people are often difficult to untangle because we say, hey, we're Christians. We're people of our word. Our yes is yes and our no is no. That's where the saying comes from, this passage of scripture. And when we When something changes and there's a misunderstanding, oftentimes that leads to distrust of one another. When there's communication problems, that leads to mistrust or distrust of one another. And we have to do exactly what Paul is doing here. We have to back up, explain what happened, do our best to say, hey, you know me. Paul had spent 18 months there establishing the church in that wicked city he says you know me how i labored with my hand and 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 i did what i did because i love you that's what he's telling them so uh, probably all of us have experienced this anybody here not experienced miscommunication in your family or at the work or even at church certainly we all have and It's easy to have it take place and it's more, much more work and difficult to rectify the problem. I mean, I I know, I know the church family here. There are many people in this facility here today that have children or siblings or maybe parents that you don't have a good relationship with. Matter of fact, maybe you're not even speaking to one another. It takes a lot of work to untangle those kinds of misunderstandings, those kind of communication problems. I've seen it in the 38 years that I've been here. I've seen this truth play out with statements that that were made. A statement was made and it didn't come to pass. Or or how money was spent and people misunderstood it. Or how something was planned and and it changed over time. For, for good reason. And people misunderstand and you have to go back and explain and try and get them into your shoes or, or whatever the case might be. Otherwise those misunderstandings they just exist and communication ceases and distrust rules in the church. That's what Paul is trying to fix right here. We have to work at communication and we have to be committed to resolving issues because as As believers, we're were committed to resolving issues. Some of you know that even in my own family, after I became a Christian and left the Catholic Church, it really infuriated my parents. There were nine children in our home, and they felt, and to some degree it was true, because I did witness to my brothers and sisters. They felt like I was trying to turn my brothers and sisters away from the Catholic Church and into the faith that i was following i happened to go to a baptist church and so my dad said to me never come home you're not welcome here and it was it was very awkward very awkward for me to be in bible college and then in seminary studying for the ministry and i have no communication with my family especially my parents Uh, they didn't come to my graduation undergrad or graduate school seminary they didn't come to our wedding there was no communication. Our son died. Finally, I said, "I, I got I to gotta reestablish communication." So, put my family in the car and we drove back to Michigan and walked in there. My dad was upset and basically said, "What are you doing here?" And I said, "Dad, I just want to have a, I want to have a normal father-son relationship to the best of our ability, and I'm here to try and patch things up." And he said, "Well, it's kind of like the steam went out." And he said, "Well." come in the living room let's sit down and talk and we did and things became much more normalized and after that I found out that they were getting my sermons on tape and listening them with some of the family I thought holy cow I, I grew up on a dairy farm holy cow <laughs> there are no holy cows not even in India uh, matter of fact Brad Smith called me one day and he he worked for Carlin and Tucker and, and he called me and said, do you know Rick Robbie? And I, well, he said, do you know a Rick? That's what he said to me. I said, well, I probably know a bunch of Ricks. He said, well, how about a Rick Robbie? And I said, well, I have cousins that are named Robbie and there were nine of them in their family. Yeah, I think there was a Rick. He said, well, I'm sitting here at lunch with him. I said, really? Where are you? And he said, well, I'm down here in Littleton. And, and he said, uh, he sat down at my table and, and said to me, he said, uh, this is a wild ball question. He said, you and by chance know a Les Hines that lives here in Denver. And Brad said, well, uh, I do know him. I go to the churchy pastors. He said, you're kidding. I said, B- Brad said, no. So he said, I-, I think I can probably call him. So Brad called me and I talked to Brad and I talked to Rick for a moment. and I said, I'm coming down there. So I came down there. Rick Robbie, my cousin, I hadn't seen him in 30 years, said to me, "Lest you don't know this story, but when you were in Bible college, you came to Grove Bible Church in Michigan, and you preached there for on a Sunday, and my brother and I were there. You probably remember that, and we both got saved." I said, "This is incredible. This is unbelievable to me." He said, "Now that my brother is a pastor, I mean, I haven't seen Rick Robbie and Joe Robbie and." 30 years. And he said, I brought him up to my house, he and his wife. He said, I don't know if you know this. He said, but your dad and mom were getting tapes from the church. This was a few years ago. Maybe they were CDs. I don't know. And they would come over to my parents' house with my mom and his dad, were brothers and sisters, brother and sister. And they would sit down and listen to them together. I said, this is incredible to me. This is unbelievable to me. I thought my dad and mom probably died without the Lord. So we have to work at communication. So I'm just charging you today, if you've got relationships that are out of joint and out of sort, and we all do that because we live in a broken world, and we, we, we we're sinners. Things are misunderstood. Things misstatements are made, and we have to back up the we have to back up the the cart, the truck, and say, "Wait a minute. Maybe you misunderstood. Maybe I misspoke. But I want you to understand. It's worth it. It's worth it in the end." So Paul allowed the Lord to change his plan. He had labored at Corinth for 18 months, and he's appealing to them. He says, you know my character. but Some of them even deliberately misinterpreted the circumstances because they wanted nothing more to do with Paul. And Paul related this to the gospel. Look at this. He says, with the gospel, what is he saying? verse 18 but as god is faithful our word to you was not yes and no for the son of the son of god jesus christ was preached amongst you by us and he goes on and mentions those and he says for all the promises i'm in verse 20 for all the promises of god in him are yes and amen to the glory of God. So Paul shifts the conversation and says, you may think that that uh, I wasn't trustworthy, or you may have misunderstood how the Holy Spirit directed me, but I can tell you that the word of God is always yes and amen. And you can hang on the promises of God. Men will fail you, but God won't fail you is what Paul is saying. His word is true and it will be fulfilled. Matter of fact, we have the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22. He says, We also have, has, we, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit into our hearts as a guarantee. What a wonderful verse. Paul says at the point of redemption, when you got saved, you received the Holy Spirit and he guarantees the fulfillment of your salvation. He'll take you all the way to glory. He is the guarantee. It's the word deposit, like a down payment on a house. It is an assurance because the Holy Spirit lives in you. God's assurance is saying to you, he will not quit until he's finished the work of sanctification and taken you all the way to heaven in glorification. You have the Holy Spirit. It's the deposit of God. It's the guarantee. We are sealed, he uses that term. In the ancient world, the Roman world, they had the first uh, postal system with at least any effectiveness. And you could write a letter and they didn't put it in an envelope. They just turned the page over and then they would drop hot wax on it, put their signet ring on it. And they would put it in the Roman postal system. It was sealed. And under penalty of Roman law, if anybody opened that letter other than the recipient, they would face the wrath of Rome. It couldn't be opened until it arrived at its destination. Paul uses that word, you are sealed. Nobody can stop you. Nobody can hinder you. Nobody can prevent you from arriving in heaven under the authority of God, he says. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, you're headed for heaven. Well, that's chapter 1. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The second thing Paul gets into here is a forgiving spirit, a forgiving spirit in verses 1 through 11. Most of you know, because I dealt with it last week, if you were here, on the fact that Paul wrote four letters to the church wrote an earlier letter, then he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians, then he wrote what was called the severe letter, the harsh letter, and then he wrote what we call 2 Corinthians. So he wrote four letters and they're talked about in his epistles. And he dealt with a, one of the many problems, but he dealt with one problem, which was uh, incest and adultery that was taking place in the church on an adult level. Uh A man had married another wife. She was probably much younger, but his son now was cohabiting with his father's wife. So Paul deals with that problem, adultery, incest, etc. So he wrote this severe letter to deal with that problem, basically saying, you leaders of the church, deal with the problem, don't ignore it. You've been ignoring it. Now you may be familiar with a rhyme, it's an anonymous short little ditty that describes the problems we face as believers in this world and sometimes even in the church. It says this, to live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with the saints that we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> that's pretty True. It's easy to live with perfect people in glory where the sin nature is gone. But to live here with them, that's another story. So God commands us to love not ideal people, but real people. It's easy to love ideal people if there were any, but God commands us to love real people. And so Paul is dealing with, in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, a forgiving spirit. He had told the leadership at the church at Corinth to discipline the church member who was living in adultery, or literally incest. He had his father's second or third wife and his stepmother. And he deals with that, First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. Let's just turn back there. Chapter 5 is dealing with this whole problem. But I'll read to you verse 13. He says, but those who are outside of the church, outside God, judges. God's going to judge the unbelievers. Don't worry about them. He says in the next phrase, therefore, put away from yourself that evil evil person. If you read chapter 5, most of you are familiar with it. He says, you guys are acting like you are so magnanimous so loving that you, you ignore the problem of adultery that's taking place right there in the church. He says, that's not loving. That's not a magnanimous Christian spirit. He's saying, deal with the problem. That's what he's telling them. Deal with the problem. So he wrote that severe letter. He wanted to go back and see him, but he says, I didn't have peace about that because every time I come to you, I deal with problems. So I was gonna see if you would deal with the problem, according to my letter. And he also sent Titus. So this course of action was because Paul loved the church. He loved the church and he wanted them to discipline the offender so the offender would repent, bring about purity to the congregation once more, and not harm the church's testimony before the world, before the wicked city of Corinth. Be easy for them to say, oh, yeah, they say they're Christian, but look at them. They commit adultery, they live in sin, they do all of these things. They're no different than we are. That's exactly what Satan likes the world to do. The worst advertisement for the church are hypocritical, sinful Christians who don't deal with their sin. That's the worst advertisement. So Paul says, deal with the problem, bring purity back to the church. The Bible says it in Proverbs this way, Proverbs 27, six. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So in other words, a true friend confronts us if we're in sin. A true believer, a true Christian friend, a true brother will say, what you're doing isn't right. That's not pleasing to God. It's hurting you, hurting your family, hurting the church. We care front. You've heard me say that many times. Not just confront. Anybody can confront. But we care front if we really love people. The text indicates the church did discipline this man. I guess I could say it this way. Sometimes those who love us must hurt us in order to keep us from harming ourselves. Those who love us sometimes have to hurt us to keep us from harming ourselves. Sometimes parents have to discipline their children, spank their children, and it hurts to keep them from harming themselves. We are to speak the truth in love, the Bible says, Ephesians chapter four, verse 15. So we know from this book, this text, that the church did discipline the man, that he did repent and he sought restoration from the church. And by the way, discipline is an indication of love. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. Discipline is a sign of love. The writer of Hebrews says, if you do not receive disciplines, you are illegitimate children. You know, because fathers discipline their children. True fathers, loving fathers, discipline their children. It's a mark of love. The Bible tells us over and over. To forego discipline of a disobedient child is not an indication of love, parents. It's a dereliction of your duty as a parent. That's not saying, oh, I love my child. I can't discipline them. No, that is a dereliction of your duty as a parent. Because love disciplines, the Bible tells us. And that's true, by the way, of pastors. The pastor won't confront a problem in the church, whether it be bitterness or adultery or drunkenness or on and on. He's, he's a derelict concerning his pastoral responsibility. It's not his favorite thing. Believe me, the church discipline situation we've been through, they're my least favorite thing of the whole pastoral duties. So after following through on the discipline, the church was hesitant, we find. They finally did discipline him. Now he's seeking restoration to come back in the church and they're hesitant to forgive their brother. That's what chapter two, verses six through eight says. What does it say? This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, the body of believers, to the individual is sufficient for such a man so that, On the contrary, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. I I fell into sin, I repented of my sin, but the church won't forgive me, they won't restore me, and he's swallowed up in too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love to him. That's what he's telling them. So after following through the discipline of the church, they seem to be hesitant to forgive and restore the brother forgiveness is the medicine that helps to heal broken hearts we've all had broken hearts at some time in our life forgiveness is the medicine that heals broken hearts and by the way it's always easier to condemn someone than to forgive someone it's it's pretty easy to condemn them because their sin is obvious It's easier to condemn someone than to forgive someone because when we forgive someone, we kind of have to humble ourselves. We have to open our arms. That's why you've heard me say, it's a whole lot easier to build a wall than it is to build a bridge. Ask any engineer. It's a whole lot easier to build a wall. Building a bridge is much, much harder. But God has called us to build a bridge and then to get over it to go to the person. We build a bridge to the the person who's repented and we get over the bridge that we build them and we invite them back across the bridge into fellowship. That's what Paul is telling them. The church needed to assure this repentant sinner of their love. So lest anyone misunderstand, church discipline The goal of church discipline is always restoration, not excommunication. The goal of church discipline is always restoration. It may be difficult to get there sometimes, but it's always restoration. It's not excommunication. Okay, we kicked him out. They're sin. they, they They made their bed. Let them live in it. That's not church discipline. That's just excommunication. So, we need to make sure we practice a forgiving spirit. If you're here today and you've been hurt, you've been offended by something someone here has done, and you're holding on to that bitterness, you're in big trouble with God. Big trouble. Because you're practicing an unforgiving spirit. I can't think of much of anything else that would be worse for the church. Worse for an individual Christian life. They shrivel up, they die. Their circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller because nobody wants to be around someone who's bitter and unforgiving. When there's an unforgiving spirit in a congregation because sin has not been dealt with in a biblical manner, it gives Satan a beachhead from which he can divide the congregation, the Bible tells us. We grieve the Holy Spirit, and the Bible says we give place to the devil. Remember that phrase? We give place to the devil when we harbor an unforgiving spirit. Ephesians 4, 27 through 32 tells us that. Everybody is tempted at some time probably to be bitter, angry, unforgiving, but you better get over it. Or it's going to reap awful consequences in your family, your life, and those that follow you. One of Satan's devices is to accuse believers who have sinned in a church that doesn't love them back into restoration because they feel, they throw up their hands and they say, I'm a hopeless case. I've sinned, I've repented, but I haven't been accepted. I'm not welcome. And Satan uses that to throw them over the cliff, make them throw up their hands in despair. We don't want to be that way. Look at third and finally, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, a triumphant faith. We've seen a clear conscience. We've seen a forgiving spirit. Now in the last part of this chapter, a triumphant faith. In verses 12 and 13, Paul recounts his journey from Troas, you know, that region right there from Ephesus to Troas, to Ma- up in Macedonia and down to Corinth. It's like a big horseshoe. And he recounts his, he was trying to meet Titus at Troas. Titus didn't show up. He was worried about, he was worried about Titus. He was worried about the church at Corinth. And, and he, was, he was anxious about all of these things that were going on. He, had to know, he says here in these verses, I had an open door of preaching. Uh, God opened a great door for me in Troas, but I had no peace in my spirit because of the trouble that was going on at Corinth. and it, it almost appeared like Satan had won the day. He had defeated Paul. Remember what Paul says, chapter one here? Turn over, look across the page, 1 Corinthians chapter one. Look at Paul says in verses eight and nine, he says, for we do not want to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. He's talking about Troas. He's talking about in Ephesus. We don't want you to be ignorant about the trouble I went through in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure. Above strength, so that we despaired of of life. Here is the great apostle Paul saying, "I was so burdened down, I was such in despair, I didn't want to live any longer." Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I felt like I was as good as dead, and God raised me up. So that that brings us to verse fourteen through the end of this chapter. Paul abruptly pivots. He's talking about all of his troubles, how despairing he was, how he missed Titus, how the Corinthians were such a problem, just on and on. And he was burdened down with things. But in verse 14, he pivots in his narrative about his trouble and he trains his focus on heaven and the triumph that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 14. Chapter two, he says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ amongst those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Who is sufficient for these things, he says. Let me, let's get the context here. As, as Paul pivots and trains his focus on, on praising God and the victory that we find in Christ. The picture here is of the Roman triumphal procession that everybody in Corinth was very familiar with. It was a Roman city in Greece. The Roman triumphal procession that took place when a conquering general marched back to Rome with the spoils of a victorious campaign. The equivalent of maybe we would say an American ticker tape parade. That's what it was in their day. The Roman triumphal procession. But there were, some, there were some items that had to be met for them to receive a triumphal procession. If the commander-in-chief won a complete victory on enemy soil, number one, killed at least 5,000 enemy combatants, number two, gained new territory for the emperor, number three, then he and his soldiers were entitled A triumphal procession. The parade would include the spoils of battle. They would, as they conquered new land, sometimes they would carry the the things that they'd taken in spoils of war, gold, silver, armory. Sometimes it was too big. They were on carts and hauled by oxen. Sometimes they were actually statues and arcs of triumph and that kind of thing. They would haul it into the city of Rome on carts and they would be carrying things. The soldiers became enriched. So the, the parade would include the spoils of battle The captive enemy soldiers who were chained and in this procession, they knew what awaited them. They were in chains and they were going to the Circus Maximus to fight wild beasts. So here's the enemy combatants. And uh, they were joined then when they came into the city by the Roman priests. The various Roman gods had temples and they had priests. And the Roman priests would lead the procession and they would have incense burners. And they would be all along the parade route and, and, and joining in with the commander-in-chief and the soldiers who were victorious in battle, uh, waving their incense burners. That's the picture Paul is painting here, paying tribute to these victorious soldiers and their general. The procession would end at the Circus Maximus. I've been there. Some of you have. There's, a, there's the uh, uh, Circus Maximus, and then there's the, not cathedral, whatever the word I'm looking for, the Colosseum. So there's Colosseum, and not that far away is the Circus Maximus. So they would go to the Circus Maximus, and there the enemy captives would entertain the people by fighting Wild beasts being killed by the wild beasts for their entertainment of the Roman citizens. So how does this apply, this picture that Paul is painting that was very familiar to every Roman citizen, how does that apply to burdened believers today and maybe even in their day as well, of course? How does it apply? Jesus Christ is our great commander-in-chief, He wrought a great victory on enemy soil, this earth. Our commander-in-chief wrought a great victory on foreign soil, this earth, and he completely defeated the enemy. Satan is vanquished. He's defeated. He faces judgment. He's defeated the enemy. Instead of killing 5,000 persons, he gave life to more than 5,000 persons almost immediately. 3,000 at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter three, un, Acts chapter four, another 2,000 were saved. 5,000 saved right out of a gate after Peter's sermon. And millions, of course since then. Jesus claimed the spoils of battle What is the spoils of battle in the spiritual sense? captive souls lost soul who've been captive held bondage to sin and to Satan that's exactly how Jesus describes it in Luke chapter 11 that's how Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 that we are captives in sin and bondage to Satan that's the spoils of his victory the victorious general's sons young as they may be would fall in line behind The commander-in-chief, the general that won the victory, they would fall in line behind his chariot. They were part of the family. They too would go on, hopefully, to make great conquests someday as well. And that's where we as believers are today. Following in Christ's triumph, following our great commander-in-chief, our great warrior, Jesus Christ. We do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. The victory's already been won by him. Both in Asia and in Corinth, the situation looked bleak. But because Paul believed God, he trusted God, he obeyed God, that defeat was turned to victory. And he was reminding them of that by this illustration, this analogy that they were very familiar with. Notice what he says here. The last phrases that we read, that the incense, this incense, the incense burning meant different things to different people. That's what he says. Life unto life or death unto death. In other words, if you were a victorious soldier in the Roman army, it meant, the incense meant victory. It meant life. If you were a captive soldier of an enemy nation, it meant defeat, it meant death. You were going to fight wild animals in the Circus Maximus very shortly. So the incense means different things to different people depending upon what side, what army they're in and who they're following. In other words, the Christian life, in conclusion... The Christian life and ministry are matters of life and death. We forget that sometimes. We forget how important our life and our ministry is. It means life and death to people. Eternal life or eternal death. That's why Paul says in verse 16, notice his last phrase, he says, who is sufficient for these things? It's like he's it's like he's overwhelmed by his own words. He's overcome by what the Spirit has directed him to write. He said, Who is sufficient for thee? Who understands? Who realizes how important our task is? Who can get their arms and mind around how how big of a job we have, and yet we're fighting for victory, from victory. We've already won. He says, Who can who can Who's sufficient to comprehend these things? I'm not. And he says in verses 17, that's why our heart has to be pure and our motives are sincere. We're not like those who peddle the word of God. We're in this for the long haul. God's gonna judge us. It's important what we do, he says in verse 17. So, we may have circumstances that discourage us. We, have, we may have people who don't understand this. Maybe they even oppose us as we live for Christ. But we have in Christ all the spiritual resources that we need to be victorious, to win the battle. There'll be skirmishes here and there, but the ultimate battle has been won. And that's why Paul pivoted and pointed our, our, our thoughts towards the heavenly triumphal procession that we're a part of. Don't forget who we are, where we are, what we're to be doing. We're fighting from victory. We have in Christ all the resources that we need to win the battle because he says in another place, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How true, how wonderful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you take circumstances and help us to see how much better they are than we do with our human eyes. We thank you that you can take things that took place in time like the Roman triumphal procession and illustrate to us uh, what part we play in following behind our Commander in Chief. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who's won the battle for us, who paid the price for our sins, and we're grateful today. Help us to set aside the misunderstandings. Help us to work at resolving broken relationships. Help us to love one another, like Paul loved this church, and even more like you loved us in our sin. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, Savior, may today be the day they put their faith in Jesus Christ and they get on the victorious side, marching with Christ to glory. We pray in His name, Amen. Would you stand together with Pastor Brian and myself, I'm going? to sing in just a moment. Pastor Brian's going to lead us. And you're here today, maybe you need a paradigm shift in your thinking. And you look at your circumstances, they may look broken, misunderstood, despairing. If you're in Christ, you're on the winning side. Change your thinking. If you're here without Christ, I invite you. I implore you. Trust Jesus today. A couple weeks ago, someone signed the card and said, I trusted Jesus Christ in the service this morning. Maybe that's why God brought you here. You can settle that today. If you need some help and direction, counsel, we're here to help you.